and bring prayer requests that we know that you're able to heal them all, God. We know that you're able to meet every need. We know for those who have lost loved ones that your grace is sufficient. God, we thank you for complete healing when they step over to the other side, God, and there's no more pain and no more suffering. But, God, the ones that are still here need your touch, God. They need your help. They need your hope. They need your strength. Now, God, nobody knows better than you what they need, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you just touch them and everything be done according to your perfect will. And, God, for those that are sick, God, we pray now like your word tells us to, that you'd reach down and touch them, Lord. You said if there's any sick among us, let us call for the elders of the church. Well, God, we, we come and, and we ask you now, Lord, will you touch them and, and be with them? God, meet these needs, God, as people are faithful to pray. Thank you for hearing and answering prayers of sinners, God. Lord, I pray you take the message tonight. I thank you for the letter that you wrote to us, God. I thank you, Lord, for this, Lord, we call it a 66-book love letter that you took time to, to have your people sit down and write a letter to us, God, to help us know how to live our lives, to give us faith, to give us hope, God, to give us strength, and, Lord, to give us encouragement and to teach us, God. And Lord, you even wrote letters to us to the church and told us how we ought to be in the church and how you want your church to perform and how you want your church to love other people, God, and, and people see Christ in us. Lord, I pray you take your word and fill it into each one of us. Help us, God, to learn more about you, to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, was it last week? Week before last, I guess, wasn't it? Whenever we were down there, we, we talked about um, Paul. We, he was writing in his letter, and we talked about um, the letter to the church. We talked about the certainty of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the absolute certainty of the resurrection and the necessity of of the resurrection, but I told you when we come back, we were going to talk about something else because just as sure as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the coming resurrection of the Christian. Anybody say amen? Anybody get happy about any of that right there? A little something to be excited about. That's where we left off. We were in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We, we looked at 16. I'll just begin reading there. If the dead rise not, then there's not Christ raised. <clears throat> and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. And then they which also are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That was last week. That was last time. Verse number 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Somebody said, thank you, Jesus. But every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh to the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So in verse number 20, Paul is using a Hebrew illustration tonight. We'll begin looking at this message. He uses the feast of the first fruits. He talks about the feast of the first fruits. The feast, feast of first fruits is the third of seven annual feasts that the Jews carried out. It is associated with the Passover, and it is associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was kept on the morrow, or the day after the Sabbath. So the Sabbath being on the seventh day, that would be our Saturday. So the first fruits would have been on the first day of the week. The Lord Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath day. It would have been a Saturday. Amen. 
Y'all keep up, man. We just, we're establishing something here. He would have been crucified on a Friday. He would have been placed in a tomb. So on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, he would have been in the tomb. But on the first day, amen. Anybody thankful for the first day? Crucified in a tomb on a Friday. His body was in a tomb. He wasn't in a tomb. The Bible tells us that he went down and he preached captivity captive. But, but we know, know that his body was still there in the tomb. But what we know was that on the first day of the week, we have the feast of the first fruits. Y'all start getting that. That's going to be a little something to be excited about here in a minute. On, on the feast of the first fruits, the priest would take a wave offering. He would take a sheaf of corn and he would wave it over the entire field. If this right here were the cornfield and this were all of it, he would take a portion of it, a select, and he would cut down a portion of it and he would harvest that portion. He would make a sheep and he would wave that sheep over the entire field. And what that is is a token that one day the entire field will be harvested. Y'all ain't got it yet. Leviticus chapter 23, the Bible says in verse number 9, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I gave unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheep of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave a sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheep and he lamb, a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. The meat offering thereof shall be two-tenths deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of an hen. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes, but for right now, I want to look at the first part of that. He's talking about the first fruits. The reaping came in three harvests. It came in three stages it began with the first fruits and then it went on to the great harvest itself and then it concludes with what's called the gleanings y'all know the gleanings you've heard the bible talk about the gleanings that's the thing that's this left you come behind and have the gleanings so all three stages of the harvest point to the lord jesus christ the, the first fruits points to the harvest, points to when the resurrection, when Christ came from the grave. The second stage points to the rapture. That is the great harvest. All of God's people said, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. There's a harvest coming, and we're all going to be part of it. Now, the third stage points to the gleaning. There will be a gleaning. A gleaning will be those that come out of great tribulation. There will be a multitude, the Bible tells us, that will come out of the great tribulation that will be saved during the tribulation. They won't be people like us. They won't be people that's heard and rejected Christ. They won't be people that have been offered the free gift of God. They won't be people that's come through judgment journey and rejected Christ. It won't be anybody that's come to He's Alive. It won't be anybody that has ever sat in any service at Faith Baptist Church because if you've ever been to any service we take time to tell you that there's a gift called the Lord Jesus Christ that'll wash away all your sins and that you must have Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and without that you'll go to hell those that reject that gift and they say well if I just missed the, if I missed the sound of the trumpet if I missed the rapture it's okay I just won't take the mark you will take the mark and you will go to hell because the Bible says that, that, that they'll send the Lord will send a strong delusion and you'll believe a lie so you're going to go to hell. There's not going to be the presence of the Holy Spirit here. There's not going to be anything drawing you. But there are those who have not heard the gospel. There are those on the other side who do not understand. And the Bible tells us. I'm not making this stuff up. The Bible tells us that there will be an, an, an innumerable a multitude like the sands of the sea. There will be a great number that will come forth out of the tribulation that will be saved. That will be the gleanings. That is after the time of the great harvest. Anybody in here going to miss the harvest? Amen. We ain't even got to do an invitation tonight. 
We're all going to be in the harvest. That'll be after. So that'll be the gleanings. That's the third stage, a sheaf. A sheaf is like several stalks, if you've seen it, where they had bundles and stood up against the wall. Those are sheaves where they take them and put together. It's important to notice that he talks about that he waved a sheaf, and he didn't wave a single stalk, but it was a sheaf that he had to wave. So Matthew shows us in chapter 27 why. Verses 52, 53 right here, he shows us how at the time that was fulfilled. That was the wave of the sheaf offering at the resurrection of Christ in chapter Chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 52, the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. That was a representation of the sheep offering. It is the assurance that the entire harvest is going to happen. The entire field, all that's ready in the field will be harvested. Somebody said amen. Thank you, Jesus. Our text there in verse 23, but every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits afterward, that they are Christ at his coming. So Paul explains in verse number 21, he gives us kind of a brief description, if you will, of human history. He takes us back to Adam, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul links the incarnation of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. Both of those are absolutely necessary for you and I to be saved. Jesus became fully and completely man. Just like you and I. Flesh, bones, blood, heartbeat, hearing. He became fully man, just like you and I. Yet he was fully God. He was born of a virgin, yet he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He became completely man without ever ceasing to be completely God. You explain that if you can, but don't ask me to because I can't. If you could explain it, then he wouldn't really be God. But that's just God. God became a microscopic cell, so small that it can't even be seen without electronic instruments that science has given us. He became a microscopic cell that the Holy Spirit took, placed in the womb of a woman, and he became that little microscopic cell while at the same time holding the entire universe in his hand. And he never relinquished either. Can you explain that? Me either. That's why he's God. Had he not been truly man, in every sense of the word, truly man, then he could not have died. If he could not have died, he could not have been placed in the tomb. If he could not have been placed in the tomb, then we could not have the resurrection on the third day where he conquered death, hell, and the grave. Had he not been God in every sense of the word, then the life that he laid down at Calvary would have been inadequate to pay for all of the sins of man. Everybody with me? Paul in the show and is here a perfect correlation between the sins introduced by one man and the resurrection that is assured by another man. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Both Adam and Christ have a direct relationship to you and I. Through blood, from the beginning, we are kin to both of them. It is because of that relationship that the, that the Lord Jesus could play the part of the kinsman redeemer. Had he not been man, he wouldn't have been related to you and I. 
Had he not been man just like you and I, he wouldn't be related to us. Therefore, he could not have redeemed us. There's a story in the book of Ruth that talks about the kinsman redeemer. Naomi heard how Boaz had shown favor to Ruth, and she was so excited because he is next of kin to us. Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, The man is near of kin to us, one of our next kinsmen. The role of the kinsman redeemer was to purchase both the person and the property of the bride. In order to redeem the bride and to redeem the property, there's three things that were necessary. There's three requirements that he had to make. Number one, he had to have the resources to redeem. He had to have the financial wherewithal. He had to have the stability. Redeeming was a costly business. To, to go in and redeem someone and, and buy all the, all the property and everything that was a right to them. But in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 said, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So we see that he had the financial wherewithal. He had the resources to redeem. The second thing that we see is in order to be a redeemer, you have to have a desire to redeem somebody. There has to be a heartfelt passion. There has to be something in them that wants to redeem them. Here in the story of Ruth, Boaz in chapter 3, beginning in verse number 11, said, For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit, there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well... Let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then I will do the part of a kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth. Chapter 4, Boaz went to the nearest of kin. He explained the situation. He told him about Ruth. He told him the story and what's going on. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 6, the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So we see there was somebody that had the financial wherewithal. They had the ability to redeem, but they didn't have a desire to. The Lord Jesus not only had the riches in the ability to redeem you and I, but he had the desire to step down off of the throne of glory, walk out of heaven, come down here and climb up on a cross for sinners like you and I. There was a great price that had to be paid. He had the ability to pay it, and he had the desire to pay it. But then the third thing we see, that the kinsman redeemer, he had to have a right to redeem. He couldn't redeem you unless he was next to kin. He had to be a blood relative. Everything in the story there of Ruth points to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, first and foremost, Jesus had to be a man because he had to be a blood relative to you and I, which he is. He was born of a virgin named Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, which makes him both theologically and biologically kin to you and I. That was a good amen. Thank you. Here in the United States, we're a federation. We have 50 states. We have all the different states, and they're all different within themselves. They all have their different governors. They all have their, their, their different beings. They all have their own different makeup. They all have their own different capital cities. But we are one. We are one federated union brought together by one. That is a federation. Mankind is a federation. We are all one. We were all made equal sinners by the sin of Adam. We became a federation of sinners united together as one. But because we were federated by one, sinners, 
God was able to federate all of us by one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the difference between choosing and inheriting. We inherited sin, but we chose Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. That is the fundamental difference between our sin and Lucifer's sin. He chose sin. He he chose sin over God. That was a choice. The angels who followed him, they chose sin. There is no redemption for him. There is no salvation for him. There is no pardon for him. Right now, while we are still kin to Jesus in the blood, breathing air in this life, there is redemption available. But if you die in this life, according to Hebrews chapter 9, appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment, if you walk into that judgment, having not received Christ, then you have chose to side with the devil. There is no longer any redemption available. So by natural birth, we are subject to sin. Amen? But in the new birth, we are born subject to Christ. I like that. By virtue of the new birth, having inherited that sinful nature from from Adam, we inherited death. Being born again, being born through the blood of Jesus by virtue of his birth, we're made alive because God puts us in Christ. When God looks at this nasty unit right here, he looks through the blood and sees the image of Christ. I don't know what y'all look like, but I know what you look like to Christ. I don't know, uh, Tim asked earlier, how many of you have ever wondered if God loved you, doubted if God loved you? I pray that I never get to that. I know some people have. I've been through some hard times. I've been through some things I didn't understand. I've been through some difficulties. I've been through some times when I was angry with God. Anybody say amen? I've been through some times when I questioned God. I've been through some times when I threw some rocks and kicked dirt. And I, I've been through some times when, when I looked up at the sky and, and yelled. Y'all don't leave me by myself. I ain't the only one. There's somebody else in here before you didn't understand you, you got angry with God. But not once have I ever doubted that he loved me. Not once. And if you wanted to prove it, I can look back at some of those times when I wasn't happy with the way things was going. God should have killed me that night. But he loves me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Redemption in the Old Testament is set before us in two lines. There's redemption by power. That's explained to us in the book of Exodus. And then there's redemption by purchase. That's what we see there in the story of the book of Ruth when he's explaining a a, a purchase redemption. Our kinsman redeemer, he redeemed us by a purchase on Calvary's cross. Jesus paid for you. Jesus paid for our soul. He he paid our sin debt. That was a purchase redemption. But he redeemed us by power when he came out of that grave. By his power, he conquered death, hell, and the grave. He arose from the grave having defeated the enemy. So we were redeemed by a purchase at his first coming. But we're going to be redeemed by power at his second coming. He's coming back. Amen. Anybody paying attention? Oh, I'll make sure somebody is awake. I don't do this all by myself. There there would be very little satisfaction in Christ having redeemed us by purchase if he did not have the power to expel the enemy from our property. Only got two or three people heard that. 
There'd be very little satisfaction in Christ having redeemed us by purchase if he did not have the power to expel the enemy from our property. That's one reason we're going to have the thousand-year millennial reign. He will expel the enemy from his property. Rightfully, God's property, but right now it belongs to the world. The world belongs to the devil and the devil in it. But God will, he redeemed you and I, but he will also redeem the property. Remember the part of the kinsman redeemer? He had to be able to redeem the person and the property. He had to have the financial wherewithal, the ability, and the desire. That's what the thousand-year millennial reign is all about, and we'll be... Um, my watch right we'll definitely be doing that next week also we'll be doing that in a little bit or next week but that'll definitely be next week I'll be lucky to finish this verse number 23 every man we were looking at verse number 23 in his own order Christ the first fruits afterward they, um, they that are Christ at his coming so when that sheaf offering was waved symbolically over the harvest it wasn't without a sacrifice remember when we read the book of Leviticus chapter 23 I told you we're going to come back to that that there was sacrifices there along with the sheaf offering it talked about as we read it said there was a burn offering there was a meal offering and there was a drink offering all of those things were symbolic but on that day there is no sin offering the sin offering had already been done. The burnt offering was signifying that, that Christ himself in, in sinless obedience to the Father. The aspect of Calvary is going to be remembered. The Bible says that the dead in Christ shall rise first, right? So the meal offering symbolized the perfect, the flawless, the, the sinless life of Christ. Had Christ not been sinless, then he couldn't have died for our sin. Had Christ not been perfect, flawless, and sinless, then when he died, he would have died for his own sin. And that would have been the end of it. It wouldn't have done you and I any good. The drink offering represents Christ pouring out his soul unto death so that you and I might have life. Thank you, Jesus. So remember when he went to the disciples and to Thomas, when he went back, remember old Thomas didn't believe. I preached a while back. We call him Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure that was it. I'm not sure that Thomas was a doubter at all. I don't think that's something to necessarily throw rocks at unless you study in depth Thomas. Thomas was a pretty solid individual. I think he's one of those that that's fine. I'll believe it, but you're going to have to show it to me. Yeah, I don't believe in rumors. I'm going to read it for myself. I don't believe it just because I heard a preacher say it. I want to read it for myself. I don't, I don't believe in salvation because I heard somebody else say it or any of you told me you're saved. I believe in salvation because I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a day when he walked in, he called me, and I asked him to forgive me of my sins and save my soul, and everything changed that day. I can take you back to a day when everything in my life changed. I was talking to somebody about it this week. We were just talking about how, um, we'll see how long that lasts. Anybody ever had that said about you? People that knew you growing up, people that were around you, people that had known you your whole life, they knew where you came from, how you been. They knew that you grew up in church, but they also knew how you acted. They knew things. Your mom and dad knew things. You didn't think they knew, but they did. They just didn't kill you. They should have, but they didn't. They just kept on praying. Yeah. Phew. Lord, I don't need to get off and all that. But Thomas, Thomas said, except I see. Except, except I feel on over myself. So Jesus came back in. He said, fine, that's what you need. There it is. Stick your finger right there. Go ahead. Feel, feel it. Touch it. Sin, stick, stick your hand right there. 
Go, go ahead. You need to know that it's real. You need to, what it tells me is the resurrected body of Christ. You hear, you hear what I'm saying? The resurrected body of Christ bore the marks of Calvary. I don't know what my resurrected body is going to be like. We've talked about that a good bit somewhere over the past month. I don't remember what message or even why it was up. But we don't know what the resurrected body is going to be. I don't know if any part of this body will be in it. If it will be something brand new, if he'll put this all back together, I don't know. What I do know is that I'm going to have one. And the one that I have is going to be like Christ. But I also know that there's a good chance there's going to be a resemblance of this because what I see there is that the, the body of the Lord, the resurrected body, after the resurrection, after he's been to the Father, after he come back, and he went and walked through the wall, hello, being in the room with the doors shut, in the same body, they recognized him, walked through the wall, he still bore the marks of Calvary. So am I going to have some of the scars? I don't, I don't know. But on that day of the first fruits, there's no sin offering offered with the sheep offering because it's the day of the first fruits. The sin offering was already done. This is the offering of the first fruits, letting you know that, hey, here's the first fruits, but harvest is coming. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is witnesses to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins, anybody ready to shout? We ain't got no Pentecostal folks here. Somebody run. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Calvary has blotted out our sin. They are gone forever. They're not covered under the blood of a lamb. They are erased by the blood of the sinless lamb of God. Now you and I are waiting for the great day of harvest. The price has been paid. The offering has been done. The Passover, everything was back then. But everything pointed forward. Jesus has waved a sheet, the great high priest has waved the sheep offering over the land, signifying there's a harvest day coming. And when that day comes, I will harvest the entire field. Now, there in verse number 23 at the end, it talks about Christ at his coming. There, there's three Greek words associated with the word coming or with that phrase, um, Christ at his coming. The first word is parousia. It deals with the punishment of the wicked. Then we have the word epiphany. It means to shine forth or shining forth. It deals with the glory that is associated when the Lord returns. Matthew 24, 27, For as lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 1 Timothy 6, 14, That thou keep this commandment without spot and rebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. The beauty of of the Lord, the, the glory of the Lord, the light of the Lord, the illumination of the Lord, the awesomeness, the all. Those are things that you and I in our finite mind, we can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like when we walk into his presence. Amen? It's going to be an exciting day when the trumpet sounds. And we all get to see him. 
The, the third word is associated with Christ here in, about this word coming is the word apocalypse. It deals to the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't have time to go a lot into that. It's dealt with mainly in the Revelation, but we'll just kind of leave that alone for now. But it deals with the Lord's actual presence. A presence that you and I as children of God are going to be ushered into for all of eternity. Didn't but two people hear that. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to be in the presence of God. A couple more heard that. Listen. If heaven had nothing else to offer, if there was no promise of mansions, if there were no streets of gold, if there were no crystal sea if none of that was offered in the promise if there was nothing else in all he offered is that we will be in the presence of God it would still be heaven because the only thing that's going to make it heaven is him it don't matter where we are with him that's going to be heaven and it don't matter what we have or don't have it's going to be heaven and I'm telling you even in the trials and the things that you go in in this earth and all the stuff that you go through the closer you walk with the Lord the closer to heaven you'll be it'll make some bad things a little bit better because you're walking with heaven and and if there wasn't anything else promised to do with heaven it's going to be enough that I'll just be with him I am never going to feel the presence of evil again I will never be tempted by Satan again y'all won't understand this one but trust me i live it i will never have a battle within my own flesh again there will not be a war of good and evil going on in me i will be in the presence of the resurrected savior i'll be in the presence of almighty god there won't be anything but good there'll be no presence of evil and that's what's going to make it heaven for those who reject christ the opposite is true they will never feel the presence of God again. And that's what's going to make it hell. It's not going to be the pain and suffering. It's not going to be the torment. It's not going to be the flames and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not going to be all, all of the torment that the Bible talks about that will be there. It won't be the lake of fire where death and hell is cast into the lake of fire. And this is the final judgment. The worst part of hell won't be the pain. The worst part of hell will be that they will never... Feel the presence of God again. That's the difference between heaven and hell. You and I, at the great harvest, are going to be ushered in to the presence of God for all of eternity. I like that part. The redeemed will never be separated. That, that, that in the book of Acts, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus, which you have seen taken up before you into the clouds, shall so come again in like manner. Amen. Now, I like that, but that's not the exciting part. The exciting part is the reason he's coming back. We're it. He, he's coming back for you and I. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we... It's okay to shout right there. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Some of you ain't shouted yet. To meet the Lord in the air. Still a couple of you ain't shouted. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. 
That's shouting grounds right there. The harvest is coming. This is what Paul is talking about. And you've got to understand, when Paul is giving examples to this church at Corinth, when he uses sheave offerings and wave offerings and, and drink offerings and fruit offerings and even sin offerings, they understand that. That's their life. That's their Old Testament life. That was the life of the Jew. That's all they ever knew. They understand completely what Paul is telling them. If you and I look in that word a little bit and start seeing what it means when he paid the sin offering and he came and he's the offering of the first fruits and he weighed the sheep offering, there's a lot right there for you and I to run some laps about. That means he's coming back to get me. That means there's an absolute promise that I'm coming to get the rest of the harvest. I won't let any of it stand out in the field. I won't let any of it go to waste. I won't let any of it rot on the stalk. I'm giving my promise. I'm coming back to get all the ones that are ready. Well, we got 10 after. We can, can we pray, pray fast and still pray good? Yeah. Or we can be late going and get the kids. Either one of the two. I'm the only one that had to hear about it when y'all don't come get the kids early enough. So, Let's take some time and pray. Hey, man, it's always good to take some time and tell the Lord thank you. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm part of that harvest. Uh, I'm thankful that, that he paid my sin debt. I'm thankful that he saved my soul and that he's given me a promise in his word that says he's coming to get me. And it's always good to tell him thank you. We're supposed to start out with thank you. But I want us to pray for some of these sick folk, um, some of these that have lost loved ones, um, the ones